Welcome back to the Hubscale podcast. Today we have Carlos Blanco, multiple time entrepreneur, exited his companies, and now he's come back into the corporate world in 2016 as a channel leader. Very well respected in the industry. And today we will talk all things entrepreneurship and the channel. Uh, Carlos, it's great to have you on. Likewise, Elliot. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. No problem. No problem. And uh, so I guess just a quick intro to yourself then uh, for everybody listening. That'd be great. Sure. So a um, long time technology person uh, started in this business as a telecom technician many, many years ago. Uh, realized that there wasn't there was a lot more money to be made selling the stuff than to actually learning the stuff. So transitioned to sales about 20 uh about 20, 25 years ago and automatically fell in love with the channel. So basically we've been in the channel for most of my life. Uh, currently, I'm the vice president of channel and alliances for Jamf. Uh, Jamf is a publicly traded company, about a half a billion dollars in revenue. Um, and we are everything related to Mac or, or I should say uh, Apple uh, device management and security. Awesome stuff. Just going straight into it then. I know um, you you have spent a lot of time and I know we spoke previously about how many businesses you've set up and and really the entrepreneurial journey. So I guess the, the initial question, what you always get asked as well, which is great to bring on onto the podcast is how can you actually move from being an entrepreneur into the corporate world as you did so with Citrix and, and obviously Jump now as well? Well, I got to tell you, Elliot, it's been a learning experience. <laughs> Um, I got recruited to work at Citrix in 2017, um, and the stated uh, offer was, we need you to come and run our MSP business, right? So being an entrepreneur, I meant, I, in my mind, I, I thought that I was in charge. <laughs> I could do whatever the heck I wanted to and really run a business. And that was a shocker. Um, I had a very, very difficult time. Um, as you know, as a fellow entrepreneur, um, we don't call problems, opportunities. We call problems, problems, because if you can't solve the problem, you're never going to get to the opportunity. And so you come into a, a, a relatively large corporate environment. Citrix is where it was about 9,500 employees global. Um, you know, our MSP business was several millions of dollars and about 26% of our licensing revenue at that time uh, with thousands of uh, partners. And so it wasn't an insignificant business, but it had grown enough to the fact that there were a lot of multiple points of view on what the business should be. Uh, the challenge for me and one that I didn't do very well was um, the collaborative effect of bringing all the people into the business, gathering everybody's opinion, and then factoring into something that, that kind of makes sense for everybody. I took the entrepreneurial route, which is this is obviously the right thing to do. The numbers don't lie. And uh, numbers don't lie, but you know, people have different agendas. So that was, that was, that was a big challenge for me. Um, it didn't end well. Um, you know, truth be told, I got let go. Um, you can disguise it any way you want, but that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. Um, it had gotten to a really good place. Um, the, my SVP at the time of channels and, and myself had agreed on what my next role would be at the organization, which is going to be a fantastic role in terms of ecosystem development. Unfortunately, he left the company. And when he left the, you know, that had no cloud cover at that point. So in 2019, I got let go. So what I took away from that whole thing, kind of like my failed marriage as well, it was 60% my fault. It wasn't somebody else's fault. So uh, I took about three, four months off before I joined another company called Dynatrace and really analyzed like, what did I do to cause that havoc? And, uh, and like I said, a large portion of the issues were mine and not 
factoring in all the different complexities of a large organization that you don't have when you're running your own shop. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's pretty important as well, isn't it? Because I think you and I talked about this before about kind of bringing everybody on board with the decisions and, and it's completely different than running your own shop to jumping into a business that's nearly 10,000 employees worldwide as well. So I can imagine the uh, I can imagine the difference there. Um, so I guess uh, just moving on to the next topic then, I know um, you, you've built multiple businesses and, and sold a couple as well, which I really want to dig into today because today for me is uh, learning about the entrepreneurial journey and really diving into it with you. So I guess your key takeaways from, from building businesses over the years, um, it'd just be great to dive into that. Just I have a early on in my entrepreneurial career, I was very, very, very frustrated because I was always trying to be Elon Musk. I was always trying to figure out the future. And I quickly realized I didn't have the brains nor the capacity to figure out the future. So I figure I'd solve, I'd be focused on solving today's problems. Um, once I had that revelation, life became a lot more fun and it wasn't frustrating. All I had to do was walk around and hear people complain. And the minute I would hear a person complain about something, my mind would automatically to go, okay, how many people have the same problem? How much can I charge them? And what's the potential opportunity? And so most of the businesses that, that, I, that I've been involved with, some of which I founded, some of which I've invested in, have really been formed around the concept of how to solve a problem and solve a problem profitably. So if I have probably started in the neighborhood of 10 businesses or so, um, you know, some of those are nothing more than being incorporated and we realized, well, this is not going to work and we shut it down. I've had a couple of exits where it made couple of investments where I made decent money, had a couple where I broke even, had a couple that, you know, have cost me a lot of money. And I had one home run, which is a company that I founded in 2000, a company called Next Level, which was really, again, predicated on solving a problem. And the problem was really, how do you manage the long tail or the small partners for manufacturers in a cost-effective manner where you could deliver incremental revenue at an attractive cost of sales? And so we launched in 2000, we got it wrong as most entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs, we wrote a business plan, we raised about a half a million dollars, we went to work and we realized we had the model totally wrong. Um, Then 9-11 hit, which complicated things further, had to go through multiple rounds of funding till finally my investors said, we're done with here, close this thing up because we can't afford to lose any more money. And as luck would have it in February, or luck or the result of hard work, however you want to look at it, uh, in February of 2022, the business changed and then the rest is history. So we, we sold that one. And that was really predicated on, I can manage, we can outsource the management of your channel partners to an outside organization that could do it for a cost of sales of less than 2%. And while now outsourced channel management is a given, there's many firms worldwide that do it, including the company that bought our company. Um, at that time, it was kind of re- revolutionary and to sit across from a channel chief, let's say at a Microsoft or a Dell or an HP, whoever our client was, and, and promise to deliver incremental revenue at a cost of less than 2% was kind of like heresy because their internal burden cost of sales at that time was around 13 to 15%. So what we were saying was almost like magic. They didn't believe it. But that's how the business grew because once we got our initial pilot, delivered the results, it was pretty easy to go back to the client and say, hey, why don't you give me three more reps because I can deliver more incremental revenue. And that's the company we sold in 2008. Awesome. No, that sounds like a, an amazing journey. And it was, your, it was your final company that really was the home run, wasn't it? Yeah. The next level was sold in 2008. 
Um, I got fired from my own company, as most uh, good entrepreneurs do. Um, I automatically butted heads with the new owners, as most good entrepreneurs do. Again, not realizing that it's not your thing anymore, that, you know, go along for the ride. Um, I had a three-year earnout associated with the sale. Uh, but then the financial crisis hit in 2008. Uh, we had gotten 50% of the money up front and we we hit our first tranche. But after the financial crisis, there was no way we were going to hit two and three. So at that point, I had no financial motivation to stay there. And on top of that, I was butting heads with the new owners. So in 2010, um, basically, they said goodbye. We've had enough of you, uh, which was fine with me. They probably did me a favor. And then uh, from 2010 to 2017, I spent... Uh, it was an interesting period of my life, started some additional companies, became an avid day trader as well, um, and then uh, launched my own consulting firm called Pigs on the Roof and did a lot of great work for SAP, uh, for SAP and several other companies, really on this whole concept of migration of channel partners to the cloud. And how do you, at that, again, we take it for granted now, but if you look back on 2010, 2011, the transition for channel partners from a... Uh, to a recurring revenue model was brutal and a lot of channel partners did not survive. And so SAP in particular had the foresight of, we really need to invest in our channel partners in terms of education. And my primary job was to go in and do an assessment of the business um, and sit down with the owners of the channel partner and say, okay, you know, based on where we're at and where you want to be, these are the changes that we need to, to effectuate. So. Yeah, no, for sure. And just um, obviously starting multiple companies and, and taking to the, the, the stages that you have, what have you learned along the way that you can maybe give the listeners or even myself some some kind of knowledge and feedback moving forward in, into somebody's entrepreneurial career? Well, number one is um, a lot of people spend a lot of time or focus a lot of efforts on developing the perfect plan. It don't matter what you write down a piece of paper, it's not going to come true. It's wrong. It's, it's just the way it is. Um, that's probably the, the, the biggest one of all. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, um, I call it the CEO syndrome where, or, or the credit or the um, business card syndrome, which is when you're going to start a new company, the first thing is you, you go to the, you know, to the local print place and you order your business cards, you order them online and you call yourself CEO or managing director or whatever. And it makes you feel like really good because you did something. But the reality is when you really do something is when you start making mistakes. And so the key past, past trying to get it right on a plan, the key is how do you pivot? How do you realize that the market, that the customers, that your employees are telling you something that may not be something you want to hear, but if you don't listen to that, you're going to be out of business. And quite frankly, the reason why Next Level almost went out of business and we came pretty darn close Besides 9-11, yes, you can, you, can, you can call 9-11 an issue, and it certainly was. But the reality is we hung on to our business model way too long. We, we started out as a field-based model, and our customers and the market was telling us you need, a, you need an inside sales-based model. And I've, at, until that point, I was never a fan of inside sales. So making that, that change was brutal on, on many different points besides the operational aspects of it. So that's the second one is make sure that you know, you pivot at the right time. And then the last one is do not ever give up sales to anybody in your organization because the pivot, all the things you need to do, all the new ideas that come, especially at the beginning, the foundational work of the organization is based on conversations with customers. Once again, listening to the customer, understanding the problem that they have, 
how can you how many people have that problem can you scale the solution to that problem and if you're out if you're hiring a sales manager a sales director early on on you know as you launch your venture you're going to miss all those opportunities to really develop the company that it should be understanding that whatever the original concept was is probably not correct to begin with nice no i like i like the uh the theory behind that is always sticking to what the customer is wanting and, and needing really rather than what your own kind of vision is, especially throughout that early stage as well, having a salesperson to really drive in um, could actually be the mistake. So no, I um I really like that. I really like that course. It's a uh, brilliant, brilliant feedback for everybody listening and including myself as well. Um, so that's great stuff. So I want to uh, switch it back now. Um, I know you spent so long in the channel, so long working with MSPs and MSSPs as well. So I'd love to hear from your perspective about how do MS- MSPs and MSSPs really, especially from working from the vendor side, how can you kind of influence that in, in a company? How can you drive the performance through, through this side as well? I mean, I lived it at Citrix. Um, you live it to a certain extent here now at Jamf, and I, I lived it at Dynatrace as well. Um, the MSP model represents a challenge for manufacturers because it, it represents customer conflict. Um, you hire a direct sales force or you hire a direct touch sales force, however you sell, and your job is to find out who the customers are and sell them stuff, right? And then all of a sudden you have this channel partner that's selling stuff to those customers that you may be calling on, but not calling it your stuff, calling it ABC incorporated stuff, right? And so now you have this channel conflict If I want to sell because I have a quota and I need to drive my number. And then you have a partner who's all they're doing is satisfying the customer demand, the customer desire for an outsourced IT service. So that's probably the number one issue. And it's very difficult for organizations to get their head around that and present a route to market neutral solution. So the ideal solution would be that a an, a, a seller, right, indirect or indirect, high touch or anything call it, would sit in front of a customer and say, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, I'm from XYZ. How would you like to consume our stuff? Would you like for me to sell it to you? Would you like to buy it from a channel partner? Or would you like one of our channel partners that's focused on delivery, called an MSP, to deliver the service for you? You tell me and I'll connect you with the right with the right solution. Unfortunately, that's almost unheard of because compensation drives behavior. And if you have a quota that's not route to market neutral, there's no way you're going to have that conversation. You're always going to lead the customer down the route that you want them to, whether it's that seller or the channel person, right? Because if I'm a channel person representing the MSP channel, I'm going to try to drive that business down the MSP channel at all costs. So that that is inherently the biggest problem. The second one is not a clear understanding of what a true managed service provider is. A lot of people who don't, you know, channel is an interesting thing because you don't go to school for it, right? Uh, I, I can't go to my university in Miami and apply to get a master's in channel and routes to market theory. Like that doesn't exist. So everything that you learn is the hard way. You, you know, I remember 30 years ago making my first mistake with my channel partner. And to this day, I'm embarrassed at some of the things I did and said, but it's the school of hard knocks. And so MSPs is, is kind of like that next frontier where people are making a lot of mistakes because they don't really understand the model. And the model is very simple. I am a business owner. I have a brand. It's called ABC Incorporated. And my customers are buying my brand. They're not buying your technology. So don't come to me as the representative of the organization to tell me how you need to do co-selling with me or how important it is to have your logo in my documentation, right? Because that doesn't really matter. 
Unfortunately, we, we confuse that MSP model, the pure MSP model, with a lot of other pseudo-related services-led models, for instance, integrator or um, break and fix, because you charge a customer by the hour to fix their technical problems, that doesn't make you an MSP. You're not delivering a package solution. You're not sharing in the go-to-market benefits or, or perils of your customer because your customer success is based on how good the delivery of your tech uh, of the the technology is right. If you're not in that model where you are abstracting the whole technological layer to your customers, you're not an MSP. And most companies in this organization, in this world, have an MSP program. And if you delve under the hoods, the majority of those partners are not really MSPs. And when they're not really MSPs, then that starts to cause the channel conflict on the on the on the resale side, because now they're not sticking to a business model which is service delivery, and they can't resist the temptation of reselling and reselling possibly at an advantage an advantage price because of their MSP status as opposed to uh, their reseller status. Yeah, no, for sure. No, it's really interesting. I, th- I think one, um, I think you and I, I think we met nearly two years ago now, didn't we? And we was running through multiple things on that situation regarding the MSP world as well. Um, so it's a really, really interesting topic to me. And I've, I've stayed quite close to that world stint since. But I guess now moving into the full channel side of things, then how can you actually drive the incentives within an organization as well? Because obviously you mentioned there about the, the differences between people selling uh, into partners and the direct touch sellers, but how can you drive compensation? Sensation and, and, and everything along those lines with, with the reps. Yeah, and, and that's a great question, Elliot. And 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 the thing is that to have a successful channel, it's not press one lever and all magic is is done, right? That's not the way it works. It's a combination of things. Number one, it's it's rules of engagement. What is acceptable behavior by our direct touch or direct sales folks? Uh, at what level can they take a deal direct? What are the safeguards to ensure that there's nothing wrong? Listen, I'm a customer person. The customer generally, generally is always right. And if the customer wants to buy direct, and if the customer is of significant size where the economy is a scale, you know, the finances make sense, there is nothing wrong to sell direct to that customer. That's called the channel. It's called one tier, and it's perfectly fine. The challenge comes in when there are no rules of engagement, and then there is no definition of what is a valid direct sales. And that happens a lot because of the pressure to hit numbers. So if if you don't have comp neutral, for instance, compensation, and you strap a rep with a, a, a quota, what is that rep's quota? What is that rep's desire to work with the channel when they have to hit their number today? Now, you could, you could preach all day long, and that's the second part of the equation is education. You can talk about the uh, the annuity business, right? You you can you can do an analogy to the insurance agent business, right? If you're an insurance agent, at the beginning you sell to your family, friends, the dog, and everybody else will buy a policy, and then after that you got to sell to people you don't know, and that's why they have such a high attrition. But if you make it years from then, you will be sitting pretty because you're in that annuity business, right? But you had to go through the hard times. But if the quota is such a pressure, there are no rules of engagement then generally a rep is going to say, then what the hell? I don't care about next week. I don't care about next month. I got to hit my number today. Then the third component is having the right channel mix um, and helping helping the organization understand that there are different types of channel partners and that those channel partners bring different value to the organization. It's not better. It's not worse. It's different. So what I preach all the time is there are three behaviors in this world when it comes to channel partners. Resell, services-led and delivery-led. 
right? You fall kind of the natural business model of a partner will break into one of those. If you're a reseller oriented partner, your value is ruthless efficiency and driving volume. Do not expect that partner to provide any value add in terms of services or customer intimacy or a bunch of other things that we crave. If you have a services-led channel, don't expect that channel to be focused on reselling your licenses. They're not going to be leading with your license. They're going to be leading with their services. And you have to recognize you're going to drive less volume, but you're going to have a lot more customer control and a lot more customer intimacy than you would from a reselling partner. And then the last one is the MSP or the services delivery partner. Understand that that partner is not representing you. They're representing themselves. And therefore, that has a certain value to some customers and understand that you, you kind of have to take a step back and let it go. And that's very difficult for manufacturers as well, again, because of the quota pressure. So if you don't do the education piece, you don't have the rules of engagement, the safeguards to, to, uh, to keep the integrity of the channel, and you don't have the right channel mix, one of those three things are missing. You're not going to have, have a, happy, uh, a happy organization with the channel. And so in, in times like this, you know, we're, we're on, if you believe it or not, whatever the case may be, we're on the verge of recession. Um, the channel becomes very popular all of a sudden again, right? Because like the direct team is having trouble with quotas and everything else. And all of a sudden, hey, what's the channel going to drive for me today? Well, you know what? In order to reap those rewards today, you should have been making investment years ago, right? In terms of enablement, rules of engagement, education. And for those companies that haven't invested in the channel, it's not a it's not a switch that you flip and say, oh well, get me a bunch of new logos. Um, and it it takes a it takes an organization with a clear mind of where they want to go to understand that the channel is an investment for the long term. I'd like to say it's playing long ball if you want to use the American term. You're not going to get results every day, but if you stick at it, you're going to be very well positioned in the future. What's that future? A year, two, three years down the line. Yeah. No, for sure. Just diving really into the detail for people who are listening about what is the actual differences between the entrepreneur side and the corporate life. You, you've, we've talk, touched on it a little bit, but it'd be great to dive into some more detail on that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And again, this is a measure of how big the organization is, right? Because you could have a, a corporate entity that's two, 300 employees, and it's a very different dynamic than, you know, 100,000 employees, right? So, you you got to measure where you're at in, in the journey to figure out what applies. But generally, the the biggest thing is, uh, at least myself, I live a life of urgency. I, I tend to drive people around me crazy because I can't stand still. Like I don't watch TV. I don't read. I just go, 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 go all the time. And my brain is always... So people ask me a lot of times, how long should that take? And my answer now that I've calmed down a little bit is, do you want to know in, in Carlos years or in company years, because there's two, there's two totally different sets. Of, in my mind, if we aligned all on this, we could have this done in three months. Now we got to go through all the meetings and everything else is going to be six, seven, nine months. And that is very frustrating for an entrepreneur who's used to effectuating change. I hear the customer feedback. I've heard it for 15, 20 different customers, and I know exactly what I need to do, and I'm going to go do it. That's very different than a lot of times you're not even hearing the feedback directly from a customer. You're hearing it from a rep or a rep of a rep, right? And the feedback gets diluted and gets changed. It's almost like that telephone game, right? <laughs> and then you got to sit there and decide what is truth and what has been fabricated along the way, right? Um, that to me has been the hardest part. Understanding the source 
and going beeline from one from point A to point Z. Um, when I was at Citrix, I would walk around saying, "Am I the only one with my hair on fire?" Because as a larger organization, I you know to this day I believe that my customer is a partner or my customer is a customer, and there is nothing worse than not getting back to somebody weeks upon weeks or months on a problem. That problem, if you look at, if we revert back to the MSP model, an MSP has a problem. It's not his problem or her problem. It's the problem of every single customer that they have. And depending on the size of the MSP, that could be thousands of individuals affected. And so if you don't have that urgency and understand the business dynamics of the person who is feeling the pain, because we are not feeling the pain. Let's be clear about that, right? Then, then you can't solve. You can't have that desire to to do whatever it takes to get it to get it done. Um, and then, even if you have that desire, you have to be smart enough how to finesse the the, uh, the environment to get what you need. Um, who is your sponsor? Who who can you get to be your sponsor? Right? Where do you have leverage? Where do you have to say, please, thank you? <laughs> Where can you just say, do it? And so learning all those little nuances that you don't have as an entrepreneur, because as an entrepreneur, I would say jump and everybody would pretty much jump, you know, which, which in itself is a very crazy dynamic, because sometimes you wonder, like, was that the right thing to do? And I always wanted to challenge the folks that reported to me at Next Level and some of the other organizations, question me, challenge me. And usually in a smaller business, they don't. So that's probably the biggest, the, the biggest thing for me is that urgency that is hard to replicate, especially as the organizations get, get bigger. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. No, it sounds um it, it sounds pretty critical advice as well, especially when people are moving in into into them types of roles. But you just mentioned something there about obviously um when when you was in your uh, entrepreneurial life and, and leading the businesses, when you say jump, people would would kind of move. But in terms of your kind of leadership style when you was the founder of the business, how did you kind of replicate and, and grow the business from zero to, to X, Y, and Z and to exit? Well, it's interesting because um I think one of my successes being an entrepreneur was actually the corporate background. So, you know, I was in corporate the whole time. And then I did something really crazy at the age of what the heck was I was, um, the age of 35, 36. That was my first real venture, which was next level. Actually, I was in the restaurant business before that, but that's a whole different story. But um, I started next level with uh, a wife, an SUV, two kids and a mortgage. Like that's not what you want to do. Right. Um, But because of the corporate background, I quickly learned that if you couldn't scale it, you couldn't sell it. And so we stayed away from all the temptations of doing one-off projects or one-off clients that then you couldn't sell, you couldn't monetize. And that was very difficult at the beginning of the business because, because I raised money, I had a board of directors, which in essence, you know, I own the majority of the company, but they own a substantial amount. And we set up the company so that I couldn't carry the vote all the time. So I had to convince them of the business decisions. And it was sometimes telling them, you know, like, no, we, we, we passed on that project because it's not replicable. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about, dude? We need money. <laughs> you know, I was vindicated eight years later when we sold the company and it was PwC who came in to do the due diligence for the buyers. And we were a relatively small business when we sold. We weren't multi-billions of dollars or anything like that. And I remember the the two auditors from PwC calling me into, they had a back room in our, in our organization while they were doing all the number crunching and said, Mr. Blanco, we want to thank you. And I go, wow, why? Because every time 
we do one of these audits for a small business, the things that we find are mind-blowing. And a lot of times it ends up really ugly because the buyer has to re- restate the deal because the revenue or the bookings that they thought they were getting is actually not the quality that, that we uncover. So that's a testament of, of sticking to the model, right? Yeah, no, I, I love that. I actually love that. And um, just out of interest, what are the key things from when he was going through with PwC and the audit? What was the key things that you needed to get the biggest multiple? Well, I mean, reverting back to what we were talking about before about the corporate environment, the corporate envi- environment told me to, showed me to develop a business that's scalable, that's rep- replicable, and to keep impeccable records, accounting and otherwise, and also to document all the processes which is, again, when you own a smallish business, it's a lot of overhead. I mean, we had a COO before a COO was cool. But, you know, fast forward eight years later, and when we got the uh, letter of intent um, and we signed the letter of intent, which basically says, hey, based on what you told us, we're going to pay you X. Uh, we actually sold for 35 times earnings, which is a crazy number back then. Um, but we believe that these things are true. Right. And then you get the letter from the buyer that says, I need your HR records. I need this record. I need your IT records. I need documentation for this. And I had the biggest smile on my face because, yeah, send that, send that document, send that document. You know, there were a couple of documents we needed to create. But for the most part, it was we had already done that. So by the time we got to PwC, it wasn't even a it wasn't even an issue. Now, they did find and it affected the valuation, they did find one instance of double booking. We had actually double booked the sale and it was it was not a small amount. And so that dinged the valuation a little bit, but it wasn't a big deal. But the beautiful thing is when I went to apologize to the buyer for that, uh, the, the representative of the buyer said, Carlos, you don't need to apologize. Um, if we thought that this was, if we thought we were dealing with, a, with an amateur, we thought that this was malice, we would have dropped this a long time ago, but you've shown us through everything you presented to us, that this is a legitimate organization. That could not have happened if I didn't have the, the corporate background, because we would have been what a lot of times is your typical small business chasing revenue without really an idea of what the exit. Now, Next Level was started from day one with exit. I mean, I wanted to exit in five years. We ended up exiting in eight. And that actually caused us a lot of trouble in raising money because your friends and family, I raised money from friends and family. I did not raise institutional money. Your friends and family want to be your partners for life. You know, they want to be with you in a business forever. So going to your aunt or your sister or your brother and saying, hey, by the way, I need your money. But in three years, we're going to disband this thing and hopefully you'll be very rich. They look at you like, nah, that's not what I want. (laughs) And so we had a hell of a time raising money because of that. (laughs) <laughs> no, it sounds fun. It sounds fun. So um, just to, talking about the, the raising money side of stuff then, how, how do you go around raising money for, for a venture like that? Well, then, uh, and I'll equate it to another story. So uh, I, I started Next Level in 2008. We sell Next Level in 2000. I'm sorry, 2000. We sell Next Level in 2008. It was June of 2008, probably the the happiest day of my life other than maybe my kids being born. Um, I I guess um, it was a culmination of everything. I saw more money than I ever thought I would see. And it was just like, man, we did this right from start to ending. We lived the entrepreneurial dream. Um, fast forward six months, my wife asked for my first wife asked for a divorce. So be careful what you ask for. Right. So um, then all of a sudden I went from the pinnacle of success to the beginning of, of my life unraveling, really. Right. 
But even in the midst of that, I have another bright idea. I'm going to start a divorce services business, right? So I start a, I start a company called um, Aftermath, which then became div- Matters of Divorce, which then became the big kaboom. Uh, long story short, raised money from friends, families, and fools again, and lost it all. We blew through half a million dollars. I was able to raise money because I already had a track record. So when you when you exit, people throw money at you. And in retrospect, it was a really crappy. It was a really crappy initial idea. The pivot was spot on, but then we had run out of money. And so as I'm as I'm running out of money, I decide I'm going to try to raise institutional money. And then I went down the route of angel firms private equity firms, which is a whole different raise, right? It's a lot more professional raise. Um, and we almost got half a million dollars from um, an angel firm in the Orlando area of Florida. And I remember having the conversation with one of the partners that we love the business model. This is a divorce business, right? After we had pivoted. Yeah. Um, we, we, love the, we love the business model. We love you. We love the board. I had an incredible board of people in the business. And but here's one thing: you've been at this for several years and you haven't turned a dime. You're still losing money. Get back to me when you've turned a, a slight profit, so that I could vouch that this is a good investment and not something that we're going to have to write off. So the advice on there is: if you're going to raise money, raise it quickly before you need it and before you have a track record, because it gets difficult to explain why you've been at it for two or three years. You're not profitable or you're marginal and now you need money. Um, angel firms, PE firms are not stupid and they're looking for an opportunity to grow a business, not for an opportunity to write off an investment. I wish I would have gone the on the divorce business. I wish I would have gone early on with um, institutional money. I think the, the business model was very compelling at that point and I think I could have raised the money to do it right rather than nickel and diming it to get to the point where I needed to raise the money. And then at that point, it was way too late. Yeah, don't be sure. It sounds, um, it sounds like you're just creating businesses all the time. I, I absolutely love it. So uh, <laughs> in terms of um, in terms of everything, no, Carlos, honestly, it's been a really, really insightful conversation. And to be honest with you, I think there's a lot to even take away from myself. So really appreciate your time today and uh, coming on the podcast. Beautiful, Elliot. Thank you so much. I appreciate the partnership and uh, the long time we've known each other and all you've done for me. So hopefully this will get you some reader, listenership, readership, however you want to call it. (laughs) No, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely, partner. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.